You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dunnison, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, a great success this past week with the Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell dueling autobiography CME Book Club. We're, we're sure we want to say great success? An overwhelming success. It happened. Let's say it happened. A we did what we said we were going to do. From start to finish that exceeded even our wildest dreams. Okay. I mean, my wildest dreams for that one were pretty, pretty moderate, let's say. Well, I mean, there's something to be said for keeping the bar moderate. Yeah. At a moderate level. I feel though, I do feel good. I felt good after it was over. Let's say that. Because then I was able to go home and I felt like, like I'd kind of purged Tito Ortiz from my system. You know what I mean? So sort of like a cleansing. Yeah. You were able to cleanse uh, the, the time you had spent inside the mind of Tito Ortiz out of your soul. As a smarty pants like Chad Dundas might put it, it was kind of a catharsis. Okay, yeah, there's some catharsis there. Yeah. But the good news doesn't stop there. In fact, even bigger news this week on the Co-Main Event Podcast, because we decided while we were still high on the energy of the book club, that we're going to do another one. Yeah. Another book club. And the most exciting thing is this book club, not just for patrons of the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon, this one's going to be for everybody. This one is. We get them hooked, and then we'll jack up the price, right? Like drug the dealer idea. style. Yeah. We got them WMDs. That's right. Mass destruct your ass. So what we're going to do, and we're going to do this quick, we're going to do another book club maybe at the end of next month. That sounds good. End of August sometime. Uh, and we're going to read Fletch. By Gregory McDonald, which some listeners have already read and expressed to us that they liked it and that they are now hooked on the Fletch books. So we decided we see a synergy here. Yeah. Well, and let's just say if you are somebody who went through the slog of Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell and you didn't want to kill yourself after reading that, you didn't want to be like, screw these guys. I'm never taking another one of their recommendations, reading anything else they tell me to read ever again. If you were still on board after that, think of the Fletch one as kind of a reward. Yeah. Because man, it is actually a good book, but actually like really funny and quick and like definitely not some kind of like dense literary novel. Uh, a lot of fun to read. And uh yeah, I think we'll all have fun talking and thinking about that one. All right. Here's the catch though. The catch for some of you is going to be that the Fletch by Gregory McDonald is not available on Kindle yet until August the 7th. Which is weird. I don't understand Because I know it has it definitely been on, available on Kindle in the past because I've read it on Kindle. But I don't know. They took it off, but they're putting it back on on August 7th. Is that what you said? Yep. I believe it's either August 7th or August 9th. Sometime during the first week of August, the Kindle version, version of Fletch will be back available. But there are plenty of used paperbacks. Available right now on Amazon, or I assume you could probably just go to the damn bookstore. And yeah. I bet they'll have Fletch. Probably go to the used bookstore in your town if you have one, and they might very well have a copy of Fletch. Well, and if you do wait until August 7th or whatever to get the Kindle version, you'll probably have no trouble reading that by the end of the month because it is a really quick read. Yeah. I say quick. I really mean it. Like it's almost, it's like 90% dialogue. 
So it speeds by pretty quickly. But yeah, uh, you get the paperback version used. You could get waiting on the Kindle version. But end of August, we're doing the damn thing. That's right. Uh, how's the Patreon going? Everything going okay over there? We're doing Patreon is going great. Tell the people where they can go if they want to support the show. That would be patreon.com slash co-main event. Uh, you can catch our live streams on there, our Brunch of Champions uh, live stream events before big events, uh, and then all kinds of new fun content we're adding all the time. This week we'll be adding the next chapter of The Old Man in the Sea. This week? Yes. Wow, this they're, week. Just, they're just rolling off the presses. That's right. How you like that? I guess I guess it's working out. We got music this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear on the show, you can check out more from him over on Twitter, at The Fifth Element or facebook.com slash the fifth element or soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official. And as you all know by now, that's the word the with an A. We have three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, heavyweight heat check. Junior Dos Santos Dundasos his way back into contention. Stipe Miocic is piping mad. And DC versus Lesnar seems like a given. Yo, what's going on with Brock's teeth though? And in round number two, a retired fighter goes to his iPhone notes to launch some patently sexist and racist remarks at the sport's most powerful figure. So just another week in MMA. And in round number three, Shogun fights this weekend in Hamburg. And hold on, are we seriously talking about this dude for a title shot? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff and tips for the well-rounded fight fan. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes from Mr. Burrito Bowl. All right. What uh, English soccer club does he play for? It seems, I mean, I assume that he's either the mascot of an obscure Japanese MMA promotion. Uh-huh. Or he's trying to launch his own brand here. Okay. Either way, I'm pretty into it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're down to help. Mr. Burrito Bowl writes, I want to continue hating Sage Northcutt, but the more I see him talk, the more I fucking love Sage Northcutt. God damn it, he's so happy. He's like if you took Ned Flanders, mixed him with a puppy, and then gave him super muscles. Is it okay to begrudgingly like Sage Northcutt, or would that be giving in to the UFC's obvious marketing wishes? Honestly, this time, this fight against Zach Otto at uh, the UFC Fight Night in Boise, this is the first time that I would say that I was really impressed with Sage Northcutt as a fighter. Yeah, I would say that, like, as it relates to Mr. Burrito Bowl's question, if you're going to choose a time to hop on board the Sage Northcutt hype train, this would be the one. Yeah. Because this was a likable performance both on the mic and during the fight for Sage Northcutt where, you know, I think you're right. I was watching this thing uh, and this was the first time where I felt like I also could really get behind what Sage Northcutt was doing. Right. Well, and it's his first win at welterweight. Before That's the only weight class where he's lost uh, in the UFC was his two times before that uh, going up to welterweight from lightweight. Uh, now he goes up to welterweight and still has some holes on his in his ground game. When he gets taken down... He's still, you know, he can get past to, to side control. You can get held down there for a, little, for a little while. But he did do a better job of just basically not losing there and realizing, staying calm, that getting back to his feet. And when he got back to his feet, you know, he got back to his feet late in the first round. He got dropped right away, uh, yeah. then kind of gets mauled on the mat for a lot of it, but then stays in the fight, gets up. And it's a different fight when he gets back up on his feet. He's still got some pop, and you can see uh, Zach Otto kind of fading a little bit. And then, you know, even in the second round where he's able to stay calm and uh, have tight enough defense 
on the ground where he's not trying to do too much and get himself in trouble. He's just trying to weather the storm and get back to his feet uh, and still has some power, you know, even going up a weight class. Yeah, I think you're right. I feel like this, in terms of like my own feelings about Sage Northcutt, I feel like this fight turned at the end of the first round there where he gets back to his feet. Because pretty much for the rest of that first round, Zach Otto was kind of putting it on him. Yeah. And you could tell that Uriah Faber and the Team Alpha Male guys in the corner were getting kind of tired of yelling, slip that arm through, get that underhook, Sa- same side underhook. <laughs> yeah. But Sage Northcutt gets up, and you know what I liked about it? He showed some fire. Yeah. There. Like you saw both Sage Northcutt, the happy go lucky Texas teen, and you got to see Sage Northcutt, like fiery MMA fighter in this fight. When he gets back to his feet and he decides that it's go time, he really kind of goes after Zach Otto. And that was, for whatever reason, like that sort of aggressiveness, uh, the fire that he showed down the stretch in round number one was the first time where I was like, whoa, okay. Well, this is a version of Sage Northcutt that I could get behind. Well, yeah. And, when you think about as far as like people changing their minds about Sage Northcutt, the problem that he had before was, for one thing, it seemed like the UFC had tried to preordain him as here's going to be a guy. And so there's a natural kind of reaction from a lot of the fans who would be like, wait a minute, you don't just get to decide who the guys are. For one thing, the fights decide it. For the other thing, the fans and their reaction to it decide. The UFC doesn't just get to pick the guys. And now that he's been around a little while, people have seen him go up, seen him go down. It's a little easier to accept him as whatever the fighter he is rather than the fighter you were trying to make him out to be when you first signed him. So I think that's a little – I also think that the – if you want to call it the Sage Northcut gimmick, it's found a little bit of a, a, a comfort zone now yeah. where it doesn't feel like it's as much of a put-on. It feels more like his natural personality. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's another thing people are reacting to when it, it gets a little easier to be like, okay, he's just so happy, which, you know, doesn't really mean that much if you're like just so happy, the undefeated guy who the UFC is paying him way more than he has earned as a fighter. But then once he's lost a couple times, he's been in there, he's been through some trials and tribulations, he's still the same happy guy. Maybe it's a little easier for people to be like, all right, I dig it. Yeah, he was like, I don't want to know, I don't want to say that he was toned down on the mic after this one was over, but it seemed like he was pitching a... Sage Northcut worldview that I found it a little bit more easy to hop on board with the whole like we we could we all could be a little bit more careful about what we say about each other and like I'm just so excited. You saying you turn off the TV after that? You thought you're right, Sage. Yeah, I do need me, to be more careful with my words. Gave me something to think about. Yeah. Uh, you know what else I feel like is probably a big aspect of this that I don't want to leave unexplored is that like Sage Northcut is kind of coming into his own a little bit as both a fighter and maybe as a personality on the big stage. Cause you know, we shouldn't forget that he is only 22 years old, even now. And that he, he was brought into the UFC when he was just five and zero. Oh. now he's 11 and two, he's six and two in the UFC, which is, uh, you know, maybe a more respectable, uh, record than we had thought he might put up back in 2016 when he went one and two, but He's won three in a row. Like, this obviously is his return to welterweight. He beats a pretty tough guy in, in Zach Otto. It just feels like Sage Northcutt is becoming a more fully realized mixed martial arts fighter, even though, as you said, he still definitely has some holes in the game. But it's like, I don't know, it just feels easier to support him to me in some way, maybe because uh, he feels like a little bit more of a complete uh, product rather than like a good-looking kid with super muscles from Texas who the UFC really wants to be a star. You hear him say afterwards that for all he knows, he might get to be 6'5 and 250 pounds or whatever? God, what, all, that's true of all of us, yeah, actually. Right. You're still waiting on that growth spurt? Yep, I'm going to hit that growth spurt any time now. Yeah. 
What do you think happens next for Sage Northcutt? Well, this makes the case that he can stick around at, at welterweight. And, you know, if he feels better at, at welterweight, then we can expect some good performances. But uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what the UFC does with him because there's a lot of killers hanging around at welterweight right yeah. now. And you've already built Sage Northcutt to the point where he, he has a name. He's somebody people want to see in fights, especially the one I heard after this was Sage Northcutt Mike Perry. Like we're, like he's basically, uh, the opposite personality style of a lot of the super dangerous and exciting guys at welterweight. So people want to see that the same way we wanted to see him in a reality show with the Diaz brothers. Mm-hmm. So people are already talking about that kind of a fight. And yet that does also in a way feel like, man, that could be a, a steep jump up in competition. You know who I think would be an interesting matchup for Sage Northcutt? Who? The subject of the next email here on the co-main event podcast. Seamless transition by Chad Dines. This one from David Lauderay, who is not the guy I want Sage Northcutt to fight. Oh, okay. But did you see your boy Nico Price with those video game glitch hammer fists? More importantly, did you see him get on the mic and immediately make me rethink making Nico one of my guys? Why are most UFC fighters so bad on the mic? Does the adrenaline make you think things are going to sound cooler than they really are? My wife looked up from her knitting and visibly cringed (laughs) and asked what was wrong with him. Yes, the adrenaline, I think, does make you think things are going to sound better than they really are. You're you're hyped up. You feel like you just did this amazing thing. How could this interview possibly go wrong? But, I mean, we've seen them go a lot worse than that. Uh, that was awesome though. That, he, that hammer fist knockout from the bottom. I liked everything Nico Price was doing out there against Randy Brown in this fight. Uh, not only maybe being the first person I've ever seen win a fight via hammer fist from the bottom. If not the first, it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, but also. It used to happen in the old Pride video game for PlayStation. That's, that's the right. last time I remember it. You can knock some, you can be bottom and mount and like knock out Igor Vov Chanchian. On top of you with some punches. Uh, but also the flip that he did. When, remember, Randy Brown kind of does that nice uh, sequence where he takes his back. And then Nico Price, even though maybe it's not all that advisable to do this, like did a front flip and landed on top so that like uh, Randy Brown was still mounted on him, but they were on the ground and Nico Price was on top. And then he was able to spin and, and get uh, fully into top position in, in the guard. Uh, but that was so crazy it just might work. So I like that. And then, yeah, the the, the finishing sequence where he, he actually uh, knocks Randy Brown out with hammer fists. And, like, kind of a cool sequence with the way that he hooked, like, hooked Randy Brown's chin with his foot. Yeah. And we used, then hammer fisted. I, I don't know how this is one of the official terms for it, but we used to call that monkey footing with okay. the, because you would, a lot of different angles where you would use your foot to kind of, like, hook onto somebody, a piece of somebody's body and kind of hold yourself there, hold them there and kind of monkey footing his, the other side of his head to hold him there. And it actually seemed like maybe that first hammer fist was the one that knocked him out. Uh, and it took five or six more before the ref realized it just because you don't expect it to even be that dangerous of a position to get hit from. Yeah. But he, he hammered him right on the chin with that first one and then just kept going at him and there was no reaction. So it seemed like, okay, yeah, he, he was definitely done there. And, when you pull off a finish like that and you can then, you know, you, you get up, I, I kind of agree, but kind of don't about immediately making you rethink him being one of your guys. I mean, he's pretty hyped up there. Uh, but we talk about the difficulty of standing out, especially on a card like this, where a lot of people are going to be skipping, if not the entire thing, then at least much of it. 
that's one of the most reliable ways left to stand out. Because then, you know, even if people don't see the rest of the fight, they're going to see that finish. Yeah. I've always said I thought it's – it's. I, I guess I understand why they do it from a production standpoint. But it's weird to stick a mic in the face of an MMA fighter immediately following a fight. Like, there's almost no good outcome for that just because dudes are tired. They are full of adrenaline. They're experiencing all of these emotions. Like – that's a pretty tough situation in which to be interviewed and expect to be kind of like uh, either thoughtful or analytical, depending on the kind of questions that they ask you, even if you have like a prepared speech. It just seems it just seems like a, a, a situation that, that goes wrong more than it goes right. Yeah. Uh, Nico Price, though, also a young guy, 28 years old. He's won two in a row now in the UFC, 4-1-1 four and one, four, one and one overall. Remember, he had the knockout of Alex Moreno overturned because Price tested positive for marijuana. Oh, come on. So he's got one of those on his record. Man, that, that almost should count as a win and a half. Now, see, I'm saying if Sage Northcutt is sticking around at welterweight, there's no reason to, like, rush him to the top and have him fight dangerous killers at 170 pounds. What about Nico Price? Like, he seems like a tough dude. Also, uh, very enthusiastic. He's got kind of a crazy style. I would like to see Super Sage Northcutt out there. Would watch. Yeah. Would, Hashtag would watch. would watch. All right. Next question this week comes to us from the Cheeseburger Walrus Sr. Okay. So do you think this is the, the dad? The whole family writes in now? Yeah. Do you think this is the dad of the Cheeseburger Walrus that normally writes in? Do you in? think the dad, like, kicked down the son's door and was like, what are you doing wasting your time? What? This podcast is actually very thoughtful content. <laughs> and then he got hooked. Uh, he writes, how about Elkins versus Volkanovsky? How about it? We got to see everything we could have asked for in that fight. Elkins took the kitchen sink and more yet never gave up, while Volkanovsky dropped him multiple times, mixed in some wrestling, and showed us all why some are hailing him as a future champion. Discourse the fight and where you guys, where both guys go from here, if you please. This was an incredible fight. I was shocked. Shocked, I say, Ben Folks, when I looked down at the bottom of the Wikipedia page and saw that uh, Alexander Volkanovsky and Darren Elkins had not been given bonuses for this fight. Yeah, well, and... Shocking that it was on the prelims to begin with. Like this, when you just think about, like, in terms of divisional relevance and what everybody has done going into this fight, how is this not the more important featherweight fight than Rick Glenn versus Dennis Bermudez? Riddle well, me that. Yeah, no, I mean, it probably is. And again, like, if you are in the business of trying to get these younger guys over, like Alexander Volkanovsky, uh, a 29-year-old guy who is now, what, 5-0 and in the UFC, uh, you would think you'd want him there, right? Right. Well, and Darren Elkins, he's riding a six-fight winning streak. A lot of those have been like, you know, those comebacks at the end. But still, uh, he he was ranked, I think, number 10 in the UFC's rankings. Alexander Volkanovsky comes in, hasn't lost since like 2013. Uh, it's a good fight. It's everything you'd expect it to be that Darren Elkins takes a beating and is still in there and still looks like he could potentially do something right up until the last minute. Volkanovsky shows you a little bit of everything. Also, we learned later on, uh, he injured his rib the week of the fight, I don't know if you saw that post from uh, Israel Adesanya, his teammate, but they ha they're showing a clip of him. You know, he's training in the little like conference room in the hotel where the UFC puts down the mats and everybody gets gets to do their workouts. And he was looking like he was doing like an omoplata, and sat up, and that that rib muscle right there, which I had almost the exact same thing happen to me in a similar situation, grappling, and that shit hurts so bad. And then he still fought that that weekend, still looked great doing it. So that's a tough guy, a lot of mental toughness there, and still, uh, you know, you're trying to get some attention for a guy like that, and I, I don't know. I, 
I guess I'm still baffled as to how that one happened. Yeah. Uh, Volkanovsky, a guy who had like a pretty extensive career fighting in Australia before coming to the UFC. He's got a, uh, a laundry list of independent MMA championships from down there, including being the Wollongong Wars lightweight champion. Oh, yeah. So that's one of the more prestigious yeah, titles. Yeah, very prestigious. Now he comes to the UFC. He's undefeated. Uh, Darren Elkins, obviously his biggest win thus far. Uh, Darren Elkins officially ranked number 10 coming into this fight at 145 pounds. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to Alexander Volkanovsky because uh, he kind of looks like he's got the goods to me. He's an exciting fighter. He's a young up-and-coming guy. And again, another one of these guys coming out of Australia who looks like uh, he might be super tough and you just wonder what the ceiling is or whether he's going to be one of these guys that gets kind of shuffled to the side and only has a future fighting on these fight night events or like when the UFC goes overseas. Yeah, well, and he says he wants Chad Mendez next. He called that one out like, hey, if Chad Mendez wins his fight later tonight, I want him. And, you know, his reasoning was based on basically Chad Mendez, A, failing a drug test and B, probably having a name. And Chad Mendez's response was basically like, oh, you know, let me know when you're ranked. Uh, he ought to be ranked after this. After you go out there and you put that, that whipping on Darren Elkins like that, he deserves to be ranked. Uh, I would not mind seeing that fight. No, there's nothing wrong with that at all. All right, next question this week comes to us from Slick Williams. He writes, Dennis Bermudez has now lost three straight split decisions. This despite the fact that he scored six takedowns and controlled much of the action. What did you guys think of the decision and where do we go from here with the menace? Uh, there were some weird decisions on this card all the there way were, around. Yeah, like that, that Justin Scoggins, uh, Saeed Nurmagomedov fight. I thought Scoggins had that one in the bag. Uh, yeah, there there were some weird scorecards there in Boise. The Skog Dog? The Skog Dog. Talking the Skog Dog right now? You know I'm talking about the Skog Dog. Here's an eye-popping thing about Dennis Bermudez. Uh, two and six in his last eight fights, but as Slick Williams notes, the last three are all split decisions. Uh, Darren Elkins, Andre Feely, and Rick Glenn, so also some tough dudes there. Uh, Dennis Bermudez is one of these kind of strange figures uh, in this weight class. He's in his 30s now, 31 years old, obviously a super tough dude, uh, the kind of guy who's always kind of circling around the edge of title contention, or at least was before he went on this this recent skid. But now, like you said, you wonder uh, uh, exactly where he's going and you know what he's doing on the main card over some other guys. Uh, and clearly a guy who's going to go out there and be game and like bring the fight to his opponent, and he's the kind of guy that you kind of like to watch. But this recent run of, of losses is kind of a tough one for him. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw his interview afterwards. I did uh, not. Well, we had it on MMA Junkie, and it looked like, man, he was feeling some stuff after that one. And when asked, you know, kind of about what's next for him, what the future is going to look like for him after lo keep losing these split decisions, I think his answer was, I'll get back to you. Yeah. Well, like, he's a guy who's, who's uh, he's got about 25 fights at this point. He's been at it since 2009. You know, and I always come back to the idea of how like grueling and difficult it is to both compete in this sport and really to train for it at the professional level. It's got to be like an all-encompassing lifestyle kind of decision to make. And if you're not getting paid that much, and if you are now two and six, dating back to 2014, so kind of like a, a long run of of tough results for Dennis Bermudez, besides uh, wins over Hani Jason and Tatsuya Kawajiri in 2016, like. It's got to be tough to to keep the edge and the the will, frankly, to like keep coming back from more, for more. Yeah, if I were him, I would just be terrified of any fight going to decision from now until forever. 
All right, last question this week comes to us from Evan Robillet. He writes, so Conor McGregor attended the World Cup, which is pretty cool, I guess. And he was invited by Russian President Vladimir Putin, which is fine, I guess. And then he posted some pictures with Vladimir from the World Cup, calling him one of the greatest leaders of our time, which is, I guess, an are you fucking kidding me kind of moment? Why do fighters feel the need to align themselves with troubling and problematic world leaders? It's becoming a weird pattern in MMA. It really is, isn't it? It kind of is. Yeah. And Conor McGregor, frankly, is someone who you would think might have the wherewithal to know better. Or at least you would think someone around him would tell him better. Yeah, well, I think there's some evidence to suggest Conor McGregor doesn't have too many people around him, like, editing him in any way. Either too in many terms of mainly maybe telling him what would be a good idea and what wouldn't, especially vis-a-vis throwing items at other items. It does, let me just say it doesn't seem like there's a lot of editing going on either of his words or his actions. Okay, fair enough. But, like, you know, Conor McGregor has taken some political stances in the past, mostly on the progressive end of things. Uh, he's, he's not a guy who needs the money, right? Like, right. the easy way out for a lot of these guys who are going over there, uh, and doing stuff in Chechnya is to say, well, this guy will obviously just take a paycheck from whoever will hand it to him. Uh, but Conor McGregor, like, that's not the case. So, it's a little bit more of a stumper as to why, uh, Conor McGregor would, uh, you know, put this you put this on his social media, and it'd be quite as effusive in his praise for Vladimir Putin, uh, even if maybe Conor McGregor is trying to get ahead of the curve and position himself for the coming Russian century. Right. Well, I, mean, I saw a few different explanations tossed out there. I mean, for one thing, I do have to wonder, how much do you think Conor McGregor knows about Vladimir Putin and his his history? As president of Russia. Probably not that much. Like, do you think he realizes that he's basically a dictator? That he won a sham election in his last election? Hard to say. Does he know that critics of Vladimir Putin have a weird way of just turning up dead? Over and over again. Under mysterious circumstances. Again, like, hard to know what... Conor McGregor or, frankly, any of these guys know from one minute to the next. Yeah. See, I'm. that's what I wonder is, like, does he just hear, like, Vladimir Putin, president of Russia? And he's like, okay, I've heard of that guy. That sounds awesome. And, like, just like, hey, he's the president. And I recall hearing about him basically as president my entire life. So he must be doing a good job. Therefore, I'll go and I'll say he's a great leader, uh, especially because he's nice to me. Uh, and invited me to the World Cup. That was yeah. super nice of him. Also, like, mega rich and mega powerful, and I wonder if maybe, not that I'm trying to bail out Conor McGregor for this, but, like, I wonder if the Conor McGregor worldview only extends that far. Yeah, maybe. Where he's sort of like, uh, I like people that have a lot of money. I like people who are, I like, demonstrate some power. I was bros with Lorenzo Fertitta. Like, meh. Yeah. This, it, I can wealth underst- must equal virtue. Right, yeah. Like, yeah. I understand this guy on that level and that level alone. The other explanations I heard tossed around were, one, he's trolling Habib. Mm, Basically by being like, here I am in Russia and the president likes me. The president wants me around. He doesn't want you around even though, you know, you're like technically a Russian fighter. Right. Like Um, if that were the case, you could do a lot better job. Right? You could make it a lot more explicit trolling of Habib Nurmagomedov if if that's what you were asking. Well, and also like that would not necessarily excuse you buddying up with like a a violent dictator because it's like – you know, not that Vladimir Putin and Hitler are the same, but it would be like Joe Lewis tr- totally trolls Max Schmeling by <laughs> by broing down with Adolf Hitler. Like, it wouldn't be like people would be like, okay, it's cool now. It's cool because he's doing it to mess with an opponent. Or people saying like, hey, if you're in Russia and you accepted this invitation from Vladimir Putin to go to the soccer game, you got to say nice stuff about him. Uh, th- that was the other explanation I heard thrown around. 
And I mean, there's a little bit something to that, right? Because Habib Nurmagomedov was also at the World Cup final and also posted about it on his Instagram in a classic Habib Nurmagomedov kind of shot where he's standing like in the crowd in front of the field and he just... He looks like you might have like it looks like a fifth grader and his mom wants to take his picture on the first yeah, day of school. Yeah, he's just like get it over with. You're embarrassing me. Right. Uh and so I saw it online that like people were saying uh Connor's fans were mad that he was broing down with Vladimir Putin and Habib's fans were mad that he'd been snubbed by Vladimir Putin. So like if you wanted to turn the knife to twist the knife a little bit on Habib Nurmagomedov that you're up there uh in the booth in the the luxury booth with Vladimir Putin, you could have done it, but like that doesn't seem like was the 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 aim here like like i said if you wanted to do that it would have been easy to do you would just would have had to type hey B- hey habib like your president wants me to win our fight yeah basically yeah you would have had to mention it at all uh yeah well and the reaction again from it feels like we've we've it's been a while since we've had this news cycle regarding conor mcgregor where something will happen he'll do something people will be like hey this I have some critical opinions about this, and somebody else who is like at Connor is God on Twitter is definitely going to be for it before they even know what it is. As long as they know that Connor McGregor's involved, like he could be out there in a picture with Lex Luthor, <laughs> and they'd be like, "LOL, totally trolling Superman. That was awesome. You know, no no problems with that whatsoever." So it's been a while since we've had one of those. Cause it felt like with the thing, him throwing the, the hand truck at uh, the bus, even the Conor McGregor diehards on that one kind of had to be like, well, that was maybe not your finest hour. Uh, but now we're back to the same old cycle when it comes to the Conor McGregor. But you're right. Like, because it did make me wonder when you say like the political stances he's taken before, like pro LGBT rights in Ireland, kind of progressive. And then you go and you hang out with Vladimir Putin, who is cracking down on LGBT rights in his country. And it's like, wait a minute, do you have any actual like political views or is it just kind of like whoever seems cool at the moment? Yeah. Well, did you all see like Connor posted kind of a cryptic message about how he's, he's building a, uh, like a compound yeah. in Russia and he's walking around with what looked like 20 security guards. Yeah. And I'm working on a compound in Russia too. It's barking dogs in the background. It's, it's not going of, that it's well. Dusk. Very oh. dramatic stuff. Yeah. Mine is, uh, I'm doing a mine mostly over email. And, uh, I'll be honest with you, it could be going better. Yeah. I also saw that one of the UK newsletters posted a photo of him at the game that was like Conor McGregor pictured here hanging over the rail at the, U- at the World Cup with a secure, with one of his security, part of his security detail. And it was Artem Lobov. And I was like, <laughs> oh. No way. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not wrong. Really? Like well, a, well, I mean, very recently it seemed Conor McGregor was part of Artem Lobov's security detail. Well, or at least part of his get back detail. And you saw how that went. Probably better for the arrangement to work in the other direction. Artem Lobov, you'll recall, was the one guy standing in the background looking like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. <laughs> That's right. Going, oh no, this is going to be bad, you guys. Anyway, so a lot of stuff percolating. A lot of stuff. That's uh, gonna go ahead. Before we move on, we should mention, we didn't even mention our, our awesome fanny packs here. Oh yeah, we got these, uh, Olivier Aubin Marcier uh, fanny packs sent to us from, from our guy Kevin over at Reebok. Uh, so we're going to be giving those away in this week's Breakfast of Champions. We only got two of them. so But they're I, stuffed with goodies, too. They are. There's a T-shirt in there. There's some sunglasses in there. Uh, I, there might be some kind of, like, mustache oil in case you want to. I mean, I just love how we're finally getting on brand with some of this stuff when it comes to, like, fighter merchandise. Yeah. Like, we're thinking, like, what goes with this fighter? Fanny pack goes with Olivia Albon Mercier to a T. 
I got the Canadian. You got the little the, the little leaf on there with the his silhouette with the old school sunglasses and the mustache. I, I love everything about this. So we're gonna figure out a way to give those away. Uh, in this week's Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Again, I expect competition to be hot and heavy because we only got two of them. So I also expect to not be the one who has to mail them. Well, so. I mean, now that there's only two, I think that we're going to... Have you mailed them both? I yeah, agree. No, I will mail them both because you have already made clear that you just will not do it. I will do it eventually, but it, it's going to take a while. All right. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, what does it say, Ben? It says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, especially if you want to start picking up some free swag, because we got a bunch of it at this point, and uh, I got to get it out of the room where my baby sleeps. Yeah. Otherwise, there's a stack of MMA swag kind of piling up in the room where my one-year-old sleeps. Yeah, that is going to traumatize that kid if he has to just look around at that every day. Yeah, someday I'm going to go in there and he's going to be wearing like a Josh Barnett shirt. And I'll be like, uh-oh, here we go. Smelling of Axe body spray. The War Master. Yeah. The War Master. He's listening to Goat Whore. So you can go to the website and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions. That comes out every Friday morning. It catches you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. We're going to give you the opportunity to win some cool stuff. Uh, it comes out every week. It's short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Our guy uh, Chuck Turtleman on here says that's a sweet fanny pack. Chuck, we know, man. Yeah. We know. And it's stuffed with stuff. It's not empty. Those aren't empty. There's stuff in there. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. So, Ben, Junior Dos Santos gets the unanimous decision win in the main event of this fight night event down there in Boise, Idaho, uh, over Blegoy Ivanov. Uh, 50-45 times three, kind of a wipeout for JDS, although eh, not the most exciting fight in the world to watch, especially at the at the tail end of one of these six-fight uh, fight night events. Nonetheless, are you ready to declare Junior Dos Santos, quote-unquote, back? Well, he's not not back. Okay. That's what I'll say. Junior Dos Santos, not not back. You're right. He could use that for his, a blurb on his... Uh, yeah, uh, that's, that one's free. On his memoir. He can, yeah, he can put that one on the back of the book. Uh, you're right that it, it probably was received a little differently because it came at the end of another one of these slogs on Fox Sports. Like, you showed me that one at 7.30 p.m. on Saturday night as like a kickoff to a main card. Okay. All right. Sure. I'm not. I'm not jumping out of my seat. I'm not jumping up and down on the couch cushions. But I'm not angry at it. But yeah, when you have to wait until eleven o'clock, sit through all the same like Toyo tires commercials just to get to it, and then that's the reward. You realize, okay, this is the payoff at the end of the night, and it doesn't quite feel like, you know, I'm eating my dessert after the end of the meal here. Then people are going to look at it a little differently. I also though think, you know, I believe him when he says afterwards that your timing is going to be a little off after being out for a while. You know, you. You you need to have that actual game speed, kind of so to speak, in order to get your timing down. A guy like him kind of relies on that. It's not like he did not clearly beat Blagoy Ivanov, just that as Ivanov gets tired and is standing there with his hands on his hips and 
JDS still kind of content to just pick his shots and punch him here and there and no, never really get too close to putting him away, that's when you start to feel like, okay, we're just going to rinse and repeat all the way through. Um, kind of felt like at that point, oh, wait, this is the other kind of heavyweight fight. Yeah, the 25-minute duel. Right. The, which is not necessarily what we're all hungry for in the in the mixed martial arts world. As you said, 14 months off for Junior Dos Santos. This was his first fight since he lost to Steve Amiocic at UFC uh, 211 via first-round TKO. I feel like at this point, despite the fact that JDS is 34 years old, which means like eh, still not... It still blows my mind. How right. is he 34? He's still right in the in the thick of the competition at heavyweight, and he's not going to be considered, at least not in in actual literal years he's not going to be considered over the hill for a while but i feel like we have this tendency to think of him like okay well we know what junior dos santos is capable of we've seen the best from him and maybe we're not going to see the best from him again do you realize that when he fought that uh the first ufc on fox fight when he knocked out kane velasquez won the heavyweight title and that was in 2011 you and i were both at that one yep anaheim california that's right do you realize that, you know, that back when that was like when people were like, okay, Junior Dos Santos is the man, that was so long ago, neither one of us had any children. Do you yeah, believe that? That's like a different lifetime ago. Yeah, that's scary to think of. I know. Well, let me lay this on you. So if you include that fight with Cain Velasquez where JDS wins the heavyweight title, he is six and four in his last 10 fights. And that encompasses obviously all of his recent UFC career. Because as you said, 2011, kind of a long time ago at this point. So I feel like we look at JDS and we, we have a tendency to maybe think of him as a good fighter, but at this point, maybe a hair over 500 fighter. And Although yet, the four you, is really good. Like I was just going to say, you look at the people he's lost to, Miocic, Alistair Overeem, and Cain Velasquez twice. Aside yeah. from that, he's beat everybody he's fought in the UFC. Right, and one of those wins over Stipe, who would go on to become the heavyweight champion, that one may be a questionable decision. It was a close fight back and forth, so you could kind of see it either way. Uh, but, yeah, when he comes out here, and like you had a moment where I realized, like, okay, he's easing himself back into it, so maybe the timing's a little off. There's, I feel like, a tendency to think that he's shot because of some of the beatings we've seen him take, more than just because of how old he actually is in, in chronological years. But... I don't know. The way heavyweight works, it's not unreasonable to think that he goes out there, if he can get another fight inside of six months, knocks somebody else out, and suddenly we're going, wait a minute, is Junior Dos Santos still a guy at heavyweight? That, you're never more than like one good knockout win away from that, with the division being the way it is right now, right? Well, yeah. I mean, Junior Dos Santos is probably always going to be there. Uh on the short list of guys that you could consider fighting for the title. I wanted to spend just a couple minutes talking about Blago Ivanov, because uh, it's a pretty tough assignment, right, to come in to your UFC debut and fight Junior Dos Santos in a main event. Yeah. And he kind of looked like it was a tough assignment for him. Looked a little bit nervous in the pre-fight uh, instructions. And, like, he doesn't have a terrible performance. He gets off a little bit on JDS, lands some shots, but at the same time, over the course of five rounds... Uh, maybe he gasses out a little bit, just maybe not quite up to the challenge in his first UFC fights. But this is a guy who comes in having defended the World Series of Fighting Championship four times in a row. And considering the fact that, you know, he went to decision with Junior Dos Santos, I wonder if he's the kind of guy who will improve over the next couple of UFC fights once he gets over the octagon jitters, so to speak. Yeah, he, he very well may. And, uh, you know, the... That is a tough assignment just in terms of like the pressure that it puts on you and everything. So like that can wear a guy out at times too. 
no questioning his toughness, definitely. So, yeah, I, I'll be willing to reserve holding off any judgments on, on Blagoy even off until we see a little bit more of him in the octagon. What did you make of Junior Dos Santos and his use of Dundasso, however? Because he gets warned early in the fight about doing this thing where he's fighting with his fingers directly pointed at Ivanov's eyes. He gets warned twice about it, then pokes him in the eye anyway late in the fight. Now, it doesn't make a difference on the scorecards. Even if he'd gotten a point deducted for that, you know, he won 50-45 across the board, so he, he can lose a couple points and still be okay. But the whole idea of having that rule where you can be stopped and warned just for having your fingers out without even poking someone is to try to prevent the eye pokes. And the guy does not listen to the warnings, pokes them anyway, and then you still don't take a point. What's What's the use of having that rule in the beginning? Like, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, you might as well keep doing it if Herb Dean is going to be like, okay, that's your last warning. Okay, like, seriously, that's your last warning. Don't make me warn you again. Would we consider it separate, separate fouls? The having your fingers extended is one foul. Actually poking somebody is a different foul. So he only got war- warned for one and not for the other one. I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, there's not really a foul here, right? Like, didn't get punished for it. It ain't a crime if you don't get caught, man. He did get caught. It just did, we didn't do anything about it. You know who's targeting Junior Dos Santos? Who? That, the big fella, Francis Ngannou. Really? When I believe he said this. Maybe this is on the uh, Ariel Hawani show today. said, yeah, he's, uh, he wants a piece of JDS next. Well, that's not a bad idea for him, actually. To pick somebody who's going to stand there. I mean, might be a little bit more of a technically careful boxer than you are. But you want to go out there and have a firefight to prove that you can still do that if you're Francis Ngannou. You'd ideally like somebody who's not going to take you down. Uh, JDS seems to fit that bill. He's a former heavyweight champ. He's got a name still. You just have to convince him that it's a good idea for him to fight a guy coming off two losses. Let's turn our attention and talk for a couple minutes about the former champ, Stipe Miocic, obviously dethroned at UFC 226 by Daniel Cormier. Uh, Took it more or less as in stride as you could at the time. Uh, as I think maybe we expect from Stipe Miocic at this point, though, maybe he's had a little bit of time to sink in, to have it sink in. Uh, he's being a little bit more insistent now about deserving a rematch, about getting a rematch before Cormier fights Brock Lesnar. Uh, how do you feel about Stipe Miocic being a little bit irked here, Ben, a little bit mad? I can't blame him for being irked, especially because I realized when I was reading, you know, his comments to ESPN, he's right in that. It was like he vanished as soon as that fight was over. You know, the we give give the mic to Daniel Cormier. We do the the usual interview thing. Then he wants sole possession of the mic so we can listen to DC. Then he calls out Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar comes in there, shoves him. They get into that whole thing, and Stipe is just completely absent. He's just gone. We've already forgotten that he was the most dominant heavyweight champion that we've seen. Defended the belt more than anybody else. We're not even talking about him anymore. Like that quickly. And that's kind of like the culmination of the Stipe Miocic story, right? Like he's been somewhat invisible since he has been UFC heavyweight champion, aside from that awesome Modelo ad uh, where he goes out for a beer with his firefighter buddies. Uh, And I guess in a like kind of a devil's advocate sort of way, I would say he dealt that play for himself in a lot of ways. He did. Like not really being... Up to the challenge of a lot of media, not really making himself all that high profile, even though he's the UFC heavyweight champion. So then when he loses, like, I feel like it's. Uh, I like Steven Miocic a lot, so I don't want to, like, be overly cruel, but, like, it seems like the fitting final chapter for his heavyweight title reign 
for him to be so good, basically be the greatest UFC heavyweight champion of all time, and then as soon as it's over, everybody kind of turned the page to DC right away. Well, and I, I can understand, though, his uh, anger at the situation, because if you just look at how it works elsewhere, you know, he set the record for UFC title defenses. Other people, like Cody Garbrandt, def- successfully defended his belt zero times. He's getting an immediate rematch. Just because of, kind of because of the state of the division there, and they figured that that's the best thing that they can put together right now. Uh, but with Stipe, it's like, okay, you're out of the picture, and we already have the next one lined up. It's going to be like Maybe six the months next from now. Two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're not even talking about you anymore. So it's like we don't care at all about physically what you actually did. Right. We're actually, in a way, kind of happy to have you out of there. Uh, I mean, I'd be mad at that too. Yeah, I, I think he's justified in. It. I don't know what you what the, what can you can do at this point, but uh, you, I mean, you could go and do a completely different sport because this sport isn't going to change. That's just how we do things. Yeah, I guess you you, you want to be hanging around in case somebody pulls out of those fights. Yes, you do. Your Steve Miocic. Anyway, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. I'm going to do my. Are you fucking kidding me? Because I teased it at the top of the show, Ben. Are you fucking kidding me? Was that a real picture of Brock Lesnar's teeth? <laughs> That was floating around on the internet. I wondered the same thing. Did you see that? Was that photoshopped? Because if that's not photoshopped, Brock Lesnar has some shocking teeth for a rich man. Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It looks like all of his front teeth are broken off. And like maybe he's getting ready to have crowns put on, but he just hasn't done it yet. Yeah, hasn't got around to it. Like he's waiting maybe for his career to be over. Are you fucking kidding me? Brock Lesnar, uh, shocking teeth. (laughs) Shocking. That's like, an interesting word. It looks for it. like the teeth of a predator who's been wandering through the forest it does, his entire life. It does seem like a space alien's teeth. Like, he was able to put together a convincing earthling costume, except for one detail that he was sure nobody would ever notice. He just couldn't get the teeth right. No, could not get the teeth right. It's like, it's like me trying to draw with my kids. Can't do hands. Can't, I can get everything else right. Can't get the hands right. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week? Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? Did you know Bellator had two events? I did. I did know that. But only because I get the emails. That's right. Uh, And in the most Bellator thing ever, one of the events was in Rome. Rome, Italy. We're going international. The other one, Thackerville, Oklahoma. No, the two hot spots. Uh, So my are you fucking kidding me is Twin cities, actually. Yeah. Rome and Thackerville. Sister cities, I believe. Uh... Bellator has two events this weekend. Uh, nobody seems to really even notice or care. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. That's depressing. That is depressing. Can't even shoehorn your way onto the co-main event podcast. Except for in the Are You Fucking Kidding Me segment. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, things got kind of crazy on the social media last week. Crazier even than normal in MMA. What happened first uh, on his Showtime podcast, Below the Belt, which I recall hearing about when it first became a thing, and then I recall never thinking about it again, and now I have to think about it. Brendan Schaub is trying to make a point about kickboxers in MMA. Seemed like he was talking about Gokan Saki, that, hey, maybe high-level kickboxing techniques don't always translate in MMA because it's a different sport. You know, same conversation we've had 
in combat sports for years and years. Israel Adesanya, who also comes from kickboxing, took exception to it. He posts, you know, a clip of it on his Instagram, along with like these gifts of people yawning and shaking their heads. You know, just dismissive. Uh, even though it didn't seem like Brennan Shaw was really singling him out for criticism. Who should get in the comments but your boy UFC president Dana White? Basically saying, Brendan Schaub is dumb. There's no reason for anyone to listen to him. Essentially because of his UFC record. The only thing he can tell you is how to get knocked out. And basically being like any other fan on Israel Adesanya's Instagram. Like, don't listen to the haters, bro. You rock. Uh, and then Brendan Schaub, not just going to sit there and take that. He gets on there, fires back with some comments about Dana White. Then he's not he's not satisfied. He doesn't feel like he's done enough to answer back to Dana White. So then, what do you do in that situation? You take it to notes. You take it to notes. You open up that notes feature on your phone that most people just use for, like, grocery lists and stuff. You write a single-paragraph screed about how Dana White is only successful because of the Fertitas. Then you throw in at the very end the phrase Eskimo Brothers. Yeah. Where the whole thing is basically you're implying you and Dana White have had sex with the same woman, and it ain't Mrs. White, is, seems like what the, the whole suggestion here is, and then finish with like a veiled threat that's like, last warning, you know, stop talking about me, kind of, or else. Yeah. That's, you know, kind of just a normal week, actually, in MMA, now that I think about it. Well, what do you think the threat is? Do you think that Brendan Peter Schaub is going to take it to the streets, or do you think it's like... I will talk more about this. I will talk more about this. In my new and maybe uh, other things. career as a talker. Yeah, well, because tired saying to Dana White that you'll beat him up and you'll take it to the streets. Wired trying to like threaten him with some of his past deeds uh, that you have knowledge of. The only problem with it is that it seems like, especially the way most people interpreted this, is that Brendan Schaub is trying to say that Dana White had a sexual relationship with Ronda Rousey. Uh, who we all know Brendan Schaub had a relationship with. That's the assumption that everybody jumps to anyway, which is not exactly a new rumor. Right. That rumor done been around, uh, regardless of whether it's true or not. And it doesn't seem like really you're, you're wrecking Dana White's reputation by saying like, hey, I know something about like these past sexual relationships you've had. Cause it doesn't seem like anybody who's still like on board of like a Dana White is a good guy or a, I figure to be, I mean, nobody's, Really out there being like, it would crush me if I thought that Dana White might be doing some of this stuff in his personal life that he shouldn't be doing. Nobody, no, nobody seems shocked at that information. So it seems like the only person who really gets hurt here is the implication that it's Ronda Rousey. Seems like only you're only hitting innocent bystanders, really, if you're Brendan Shaw. It's shameful for a couple of reasons, right? <laughs> like number one, the phrase Eskimo Brothers, which really hit the big time this past week. Uh which I think most of us had to Google yeah. to find out that Wish it, I hadn't. it's a phrase that refers to two people who've had two men who have had sex with the same uh, partner. Kind of racist, kind of a racist term. I mean, like, uh, I'm not, not kind of racist, totally racist. <laughs> al although maybe a, a brand of racism that we don't consider. Yeah, a kind lot. of obscure racism. And also like, sexist and misogynist to drag Ronda Rousey, if that's what he meant, that's what we all assume he meant, to drag her into it in this way, in a way, like, as one of the UFC's all-time top-grossing stars. Right. In a way that you would never 
do to anyone else on the on the roster, anyone else who's ever fought in the UFC. Right. So that, those two things alone uh, make it really icky feeling. And then on top of that, again, I, I don't really even want to like explore the topic all that much, but here we are. Uh, if, well, I mean, you're accusing Dana White of, of having a sexual relationship with one of his employees on top right. of all that, on top of, you know, any kind of double standard or difference in how you treat male fighters as opposed to female fighters. Uh, and the fact that female fighters uh, up and to now, including Ronda Rousey, are sort of still battling for legitimacy in the landscape of this sport. Uh, now you've made it, you've added an, an entire another layer on top of that once you accuse the president of the sports organization with having a sexual relationship with a person for whom they created an entire division just to showcase and turned her into one of the UFC's biggest stars. So uh, at the end of the last round when we said there was a lot percolating, like there's a lot going on here also. And none of it is good. It's no, all bad. It all it is all bad, and it all started just so unnecessarily on ev- like at every single level of it. It's just dumb and unnecessary. The most unnecessary level is where Brendan Schaub has to think about it for a while, and then is like, "I'm taking it to notes." Yeah, right. He couldn't <laughs> right. just be like, "Sweet, like we both got in a couple of pot shots at each other over on the grams. I'm done now. I'll just go record my Showtime podcast or whatever it is that I do." Nope. I got to come back. I'm taking it to notes. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, maybe that is more calculated just to, if you're a guy, like you said, where you're, you're a talker, that's your thing. Now, uh, you stay in the news that way. Maybe that's the only thinking there. Uh, it does in a way, I guess, seem to have worked in that we haven't heard Dana White want to really continue this feud any after that, which, uh, it also like, it, it, it was the most typical Dana White thing to be like, all right, here's a thing that I don't really need to get involved in at all, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to get on here on some other, somebody else's Instagram comments, uh, just to like talk shit on this guy and to use his record in the UFC. Like, oh, he was like six and five in the UFC or whatever Brendan Chubb was in the UFC and be like, his opinion doesn't matter because he was merely a pretty good UFC heavyweight. As like that same thing we always see Dana White do, where it's just like he'll always find a way, even if it's Randy Couture, doesn't matter who it is, he gets mad at you. He'll always find a way to be like you suck and you always sucked, kind of thing. Which I, I don't know, man. I I guess I thought eventually we would stop doing the same things over and over again in this sport, but we seem to just be doing more of them. And like you said, again, it's just like another instance, and certainly not the first. It's like the one millionth instance of multimillionaire sports icon Dana White, like having nothing else to do besides go at somebody in the comments of a social media account. Like what? 48-year-old multimillionaire president of the UFC. Even if you just discount everything else, like age, stature in the sport, money, like... Uh, he acts busy, right? <laughs> yes. No, he was too busy to know, like that Leslie Smith had filed a labor act uh, complaint against the UFC. He was too busy to know the details of that. Didn't didn't bother with that. That's somebody else's job. He gets to do all the fun shit, is what he said. Like this. It's almost like when you email someone and they haven't emailed you back, but you see them posting on Twitter, and you're like, really? 
And then they finally email you back and you're like, hey, man, sorry about apologies for the late reply. I've just been so busy. So busy. Been super like, man, busy. I saw you posting on Twitter all day. Yeah. You're watching. You're, you're retweeting Orioles highlights. I see you. <laughs> Who's doing that? Nobody. Retweeting well, somebody. Orioles highlights? Somebody's doing it right now. You want to do tips for the well-rounded fight fan and then we will move on to round number yes, three? I, yes, I do. Okay, Ben, what is your tip for the well-rounded fight fan this week? Chad. Have you heard of the book, The Lost City of Z? I recommended it to your wife, and then she read it, and I assume she recommended it to you, and then you read it. Let me tell you about this book that my wife recommended to me. Wait a second. Are you just going to gloss over this? If you turn around, it's right there on the bookshelf. No, where? I don't... Bottom shelf in between uh, my brother's book, The Great Detective by Zach Dundas, which you should all definitely check out, and uh, The Fever. Oh, I... By Megan Abbott. Well, just you know, in, it's right, it's just right in case you're looking for a uh, visual aid. You got an autographed copy? This is an autographed copy here? Well, hardback and everything? All right. Well. So if to answer your question, yeah, I've heard of that book. This is an excellent book. Yeah, how, how come you didn't tell me about it? I told your wife about it. I had to hear about it from my wife. You couldn't, you couldn't just come direct to me? This book. You don't want me to CC you on my conversations with your wife, okay? There's a lot of stuff going on there you don't need to know about. Well, all right. That's probably for the best. I don't want to know what, what the hell you have to say about me. Uh, this book by David Gran uh, tells the story about a explorer who – a British explorer who kind of mapped and did a lot of the work kind of exploring the, the Amazon rainforest in the kind of turn of the uh, 20th century and – it's just fascinating, especially because I don't know about you, Chad, but I was not that excited to go walk around the Amazon before reading this book. Now I'm not going. Yeah. It sounds like it sucks. It sounds like you will die immediately. Yeah. Set, you set foot in the Amazon and you just die. It sounds like mosquitoes will just in a cloud pick you up yep. into the air and then dismember you while everyone else watches. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's fascinating. He kind of because he gets this obsession with this idea of a lost civilization uh, in the Amazon, and then is trying to explore it like using, you know, kind of old timey techniques and having to carry heavy ass packs all around, cutting his way through the Amazon with machetes. Um, yeah, so I recommend that nonfiction book, The Lost City of Z. I hear even Chad's read it. Oh, I read it a long time ago. Oh, here As evidenced by the, my hardcover Hipster copy. Chad Dundas. First edition hardcover copy that you've got there in your hand. He was into this before it was cool. Ben, have you watched the second season of Glow yet? I'm kind of midway through it right now. Woo! Yeah, I'm into it. It's hot. It's good. It's like... There's some things about it that are a little bit too on the nose for me, but I will say as a whole, I think it's better than the first one. And I believe I got on this podcast and recommended the first season a while ago. Well, I don't want to have to do this to you, but I was actually quoted in Variety as somebody who was talking about the first season of Glow. Really? That's right. You know who they mentioned in order to give their audience an idea of the the breadth of the support for Glow? They who? mentioned me and Lin Manuel Miranda. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they're like these two people air. are talking about the about Glow and like have positive things to say about it on Twitter. Second season of Glow, really, really good. Allison Brie back with an incredible performance on that show. Uh, there's a certain subtlety to her acting on that show that is really good, considering that a lot of the rest of the show is really over the top. Like, and her character is kind of over the top at times, too. But she does a lot of what I would call face acting, where she's like, 
she someone says something mean to her and she makes a face that it's like i'm going to internalize that hurt but i'm not going to say anything about it face acting face acting which maybe you just call acting <laughs> i don't know uh betty gilpin also really good as the uh the other female lead there who's kind of the villain but not quite like the show is too good for someone to really be the villain aside from the suits the t- television executives but uh betty gilpin super good and mark marin just a natural as a sleazy wrestling promoter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not only that, but like a uh, a really talented ensemble cast where almost everybody on the show is someone that you want to see more of uh, as the show goes on. And I will say, and most people listening to the show right now know this, as a professional wrestling fan, I really like uh, Glow as a show. I think that it's awesome and fun to watch and entertaining. And I think that it takes on professional wrestling in a good and smart and surprising way. And they also get m- almost all of the wrestling stuff totally right. So go watch season one and two of Glow if you haven't already. If you didn't see Ben Folks quoted an, about it in Variety. You whatever. already you saw that though, surely. Everybody who listens to this show, I'm sure, has a subscription to Variety. Yeah. As of right now, though, we're going to move on to round number three. Ben, as we all know by now, the secret of the ooze, Vulcan Uzdemir, is out of the main event of this fight night event this weekend from Hamburg, Germany, and he is in against Alexander Gustafsson at UFC 227 with, I might add, his assault charges having been dropped down there in Florida because of the old defendant wouldn't cooperate. Free and clear. I don't know if I would say free and clear. Like it never happened. I guess we can say free and clear. We're just not going to say exonerated. Totally innocent. And that leaves Mauricio Shogun Hua taking on Anthony Smith here at Fight Night 134 in your main event, a light heavyweight attraction. Let's just cut to the chase here, Ben. Daniel Cormier has already gone on the record saying he wouldn't mind defending the 205-pound title against Shogun in the interim between his fights uh, with Shogun or with Stipe Miocic and then Brock Lesnar, which... We all know what's going on here, right? Yeah. I like, Daniel Cormier ain't fooling nobody, saying he wants to fight Shogun Hua. It's really weird to me how many people manage to talk themselves into that one, though. By just being like, hey, Shogun's on a win streak. Former Pride champion, for, you know, former UFC champion. Now he's on a win streak. And so we're going to take that idea seriously as if that would be a competitive fight right now. Daniel Cormier versus Shogun Hua. He has won three in a row. Okay. Added into this fight against Anthony Smith. I won't disagree with that, that fact. He's beat Roger Nog at UFC 190. He beat Corey uh, Beeston 25-8 at UFC uh, 198. Corey Anderson. He beat Jean Vellante down there at uh, Belfort versus Gastelum. That was March 2017. What do you want to like peg the betting odds at if Shogun Hua and Daniel Cormier were to fight right now? I, well, I do. I'm going to take a guess, but I also do want to know the odds for Mauricio Hua versus Anthony Smith. So I hope that we can find those if they exist. Uh, Shogun Hua versus Daniel Cormier would have to be considered one of the great underdog stories of our time. <laughs> Correct? 
I mean, I say Daniel Cormier goes off at a five to one favorite at least. Oh, at five to one, at least ten to one, maybe. Well, take it easy. This guy just beat the champ. He's a champ, champ now. Uh, the odds right now for Shogun Hua versus Anthony Smith. Uh, Shogun Hua about a two to one underdog against yeah. Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith, by the way, who was he came up from middleweight, had his light heavyweight fight uh, for the first time at against Rashad Evans in his last one, uh, and now kind of a late replacement here, stepping in for the ooze who got taken out so he could fight Alexander Gustafson, uh, still coming in as a, a pretty considerable favorite over Shogun Hua. Well, most recently seen as the guy who uh, knocked Rashad Evans into retirement at UFC 225. Uh, previous to that, he lost to Tiago Santos, but had beat Hector Lombard, Andrew Sanchez, uh, and Elvis Mutapich. Nailed it. Mutapich. No, he's a tough guy, man. I mean, obviously, he's a, he's a tough, hungry young fighter who seems like seems like the kind of thing we talked about before where your your reward for a lifetime spent in MMA, delivering us some of our favorite moments, if you hang around in it and, you know, you don't go out on top and you're not a huge, like, once in a, a decade superstar who can be depended on to keep delivering pay-per-view buys like Brock Lesnar, for just a guy who has just been really good for a long time like Shogun Hua, your reward is that you get to fight a young killer over and over again until one of them finally gets you. Anthony Congratulations. Smith, I guess he's just scary. He's just a scary-looking dude. As I've said before, he looks like you asked the computer on the Starship Enterprise to synthesize an MMA fighter. And it spits out Anthony Smith. Uh, he's big. He was big for middleweight. He's he's a, a a physical guy covered in tattoos. He looks like the kind of dude that the UFC would have loved to promote mid two thousands. Maybe still is. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like we're getting him, him into a situation where what we really want is for him to go over there to Hamburg and have something terrible happen to Shogun Hua, so then Anthony Smith is a comer at two hundred five pounds. Yeah, and yet nobody's gonna even breathe an idea about Anthony Smith if he wins this fight is going to be in position to challenge for the title. Come on. That's just You're saying Daniel Cormier is not going to call up the Ariel Helwani show next week and be like, you know what I was thinking? Maybe Anthony Smith instead of Shogun Hua. That'll put a lot of money in my pocket. I want to fight Anthony Smith live on pay-per-view. No. No, I do not think that's going to happen. I also don't think, though, no matter what Daniel Cormier says, that as long as the Brock Lesnar fight remains a possibility, I don't think the UFC's putting him in there with anybody. Well, it shouldn't, right? And, like, even though we know Daniel Cormier allegedly working on this uh, hard and fast retirement date, which I believe is in March of uh, 2019 when he turns 40, although I was thinking about that, if he's not fighting Brock until January... I assume January 1st or whatever, like as as quickly as we can get him in and out of the USADA pool. It'll be like mid-January for Brock's clear, but okay. Okay, he fights Brock mid-January. If we assume that he wants to fight Jonathan uh, Dwight Jones also, probably not going to squeeze that in before March, I would think. Maybe he won't even give a damn. Maybe he'll be totally fine with that. Maybe, maybe he will. Maybe we'll extend that deadline. Well, hard and fast and I, I mean, you could talk yourself into extending the deadline if you're Daniel Cormier, right? If you were like, I wanted to retire when I was 40, but now I'm 40 and two months. Does that mean I'm going to turn down an extra few million dollars? Maybe not. But do you think it also means that he would be serious about working in another fight? If you're, if you're Daniel Cormier and you're like, all right, I got less than a year left. Do I want to, do I want to get them all in? I, I mean, I don't think that there's any way, no matter what he says, that Daniel Cormier could go to the UFC and be like, give me Shogun. Shogun, say Shogun goes out there and goes full 
Pride Grand Prix all over Anthony Smith, but without disqualifying himself with soccer kicks or anything. Just goes out there, puts Anthony Smith in the tie clinch, knees a hole in his goddamn head, and everybody going, wow, that is the old Shogun. He, This guy is back all the way. I still don't think when Daniel Cormier goes to the UFC and says, all right, me, Shogun, pay-per-view in November, I think they are like, dude, go on vacation and don't call us until January. You know what you would be doing? If you set up Daniel Cormier versus Shogun Hua. Tempting the MMA gods. You wouldn't be tempting them, my friend. You would be driving down the street past the stoop where the MMA gods are sitting with your pants down and your buns. Yeah, I'm going to say buns because I'm a 40-year-old father or two. Your buns hanging out the open window. You have three children, by the way. Did I say father of two? That's right. Father of three. I love my youngest. <laughs> As much as life itself. Still takes a while to get used he to it. He sleeps in a room jam-packed with MMA merch <laughs> piled up around his crib. A kid, years later, people are going to look back and be like, that kid never had a chance. His dad never gave him a chance. Buns hanging out the window, horn honking, and you're reaching around to point. To <laughs> you're point reaching through the, the back window? Yep, to, to point at the buns <laughs> to make sure that the MMA gods see him. If they set that fight up, Daniel Cormier against Shogun Hua, I'm putting the house up. I will bet the house on Shogun Hua because there's no way he's not winning that fight because that ruins absolutely everything. Or Daniel Cormier wins by knockout in a way that injures his hand so badly it has to be amputated. That's also a possibility. That's the other way. That's another possibility. It. I guess I'd have to think about that before I took my the deed of my house to <laughs> yes. bodog.com Something you laid it on the line. you want to consider there. All right, what are we doing here? You want to do just saying stuff? Sure, let's do And then do. we will... Uh, We'll move on to the end of the show. Man, we're not, nobody's talking about Chad Mendes. And maybe it's the circumstances of uh, the suspension that he just came off of this past week at the fight night event down there in Boise. But I'm just saying Chad Mendes went out there and beat Miles Jury like it wasn't no thing. Like Chad Mendes came back after this break, bouncing around, looking like the Chad Mendes of old, ends up TKO and Miles Jury two minutes and 52 seconds into the first round. And we got a different featherweight division on our hands here. No more Jose Aldo. No more Conor McGregor. We don't even know what's going on at 145 right now. I'm just saying, is it nice to have Chad Mendez back, even though he got suspended for doping? I'm just saying. Just saying. I think it might kind of be. Well, I'm just saying, did you happen to see on the prelims of this UFC Boise event, Liz Carmouche went out there and won a decision over Jennifer Maya? I know that it happened. Okay, that's good enough. Afterward, Liz Carmouche was talking about being really sick in the lead up to this fight, that on the Sunday, uh, you know, less than a week before the fight, she had a fever, really laid low, a lot of respiratory problems, and she described the process of how this illness had moved from her two-year-old to her wife to her, and I'm just saying, as a parent, it's the most relatable I've ever felt to basically any MMA fighter. Yeah. Because you know that feeling where especially you got something that you you know you can't afford to be sick for. And yet you've been through it before. So you see when a two-year-old gets sick and you know what it's like that it's not as if they're capable of keeping that sickness to themselves. I mean, a two-year-old who is sick is still like touching your face and breathing directly like into your mouth at several points throughout the day. And they just, it cannot be helped. And you're still telling yourself, well, maybe I won't get it. And then it moves on, and her wife gets it. And she thinks, all right, 
well, I've been spared so far. Maybe my immune system is just stronger than both of theirs. Maybe I still won't get it. And the fight gets a little closer, a little closer, and then less than a week to go, and you got it. And you think, in Liz Carmouche's words, ah, they got me. I'm just saying, yeah, sing it, sister. We all been there. Just saying. Yeah, that is, that's very relatable, frankly. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week to break down all of the stuff that happens at this Fight Night event from Hamburg, Germany. And then we may even look ahead to uh, Fight Night. Oh, UFC on Fox 30 coming up July the 28th, featuring Eddie Alvarez versus Dustin Poirier, which is actually one you probably want to have the ass in the seat to watch. Jose Aldo on the card. Uh, Joanna Yedjechik on the card. Olive Abin Mercier on the card. OAM, that's my guy. So we're dealing with a little bit of uh, good timing here. That's my giving guy. Giving out these, uh, OAM fanny, these packs fanny packs in the house. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. <sighs> so when you go to drive by the stoop yep. where the MMA gods hang out. Buns hanging out the window. Buns in the window. Honking the horn. Are the MMA gods just sitting there, like, whittling a John Jones voodoo doll? <laughs> like, throwing back, you know, Mickey's 40s? What are they doing? Wearing their track suits, uh, squatted, squatting down with their elbows, popping their knees.